everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand-selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. We're on with Robert Breedlove and Robert has been on the podcast before. We were fortunate enough to see Robert in person down in the Bitcoin conference in 2022. Robert, you held a kind of like, I don't want to say a, a private event afterwards, but you had your own event afterwards with Jordan Peterson. That was amazing. Um, that talk in Miami was like, you know, really, really worth it. So thank you for putting that on. And you put out a bunch of great content on your, what is money show. And I think more and more, I find myself trying to explain to people what money is, what, you know, how does economics work? And uh, I just thought who better to bring back on the show than you to uh, jump into all this stuff. So thank you. And I'm going to hit you with the first question. Um, why are you doing what you're doing? Like you have the, the, what is money podcast, uh, the, what is money show. And you're spending a lot of time on this stuff. This doesn't, you know, you, you research the guests, you have great questions. This, this takes a lot of effort. Why are you doing this? Well, it's a good question. Um, I guess I would first have to just admit that I enjoy it. <laughs> I really like reading um, esoteric books, trying to wrestle with big ideas, ask fundamental questions. I've always just kind of been inclined that way my entire life. So there's that. Um, and then I guess the other big piece is that I was fortunate enough to discover the creature from Jekyll Island when I was 18, 19 years old. And so I had come to the conclusion that rather formative years in my life that central banking is the main problem in the world. Um, I, you know, I don't say that lightly. I know we have a lot of problems, but I think when you really start to peel back the layers of monetary history, you'll see that, you know, the central bank and global war machines tend to go hand in hand. So um, that alone sort of makes it one of the main problems. And I could go on and on about the other problems that systemized theft and coercion create in the world as we do on the show. We go on and on about that. <laughs> um, so that's part of the why is there's this ethical dimension of just trying to, what is the, uh, I think Taleb said this, if you see a fraud and do not call it a fraud, then you are a fraud. 
something mm-hmm. to that effect. So mm-hmm. I feel as though I've been privileged enough in my life to have this kind of naturally curious attitude that took me to the central banking rabbit hole before Bitcoin even. And then through Bitcoin, thank goodness, took me into the Austrian economic rabbit hole and connecting those two worldviews with Bitcoin is kind of the the crescendo to it all, right? It's It's been this long theoretical struggle between different schools of thought and economics and who gets to control what. And um, unfortunately, libertarians have just always suffered because it's it's in human nature to not to violate other people's property if it's profitable. But finally, Bitcoin makes this whole thing like a live market test. It turns that theoretical debate into a live market test. And so to me, it feels okay, like- so on that, on- just a once in a lifetime opportunity, right? That this is, it's a major, potentially a major transformation. So to be the, uh, the ability to be a part of something this big is very significant and, mm. and worth pursuing. Yeah. Well said. I feel like once you dive down Bitcoin, I still remember, I wasn't going to ask you this, but I still remember reading that one article. I think you put it on medium or one of your websites. I think, uh, it was, was it called Bitcoin and the number zero or Bitcoin number and zero, zero. Bitcoin. number zero in Bitcoin. And I remember reading that. I'll just, I just never forget. I remember reading it in my backyard. We, we have a pool in the backyard. I remember reading it, sitting next to the pool and putting that down thinking, what, what is this Bitcoin thing? Like, what is like, what is this? Like, it was that article for me. That was actually, I think I, before I had read the Bitcoin standard, mm-hmm. but it took me to this new place of like, what, what am I experiencing here? Like, and I think when you haven't read a lot about money and economics and Bitcoin, just hearing myself say that I sound like such a monetary geek, like I sound <laughs> like such a, but it's so true. Like once you understand this, it's just a never ending rabbit hole. Okay. So I, I want to ask you, you said Austrian economics for anyone listening, who's not familiar with Austrian economics, how would you explain it just quickly as a, so people have a frame of reference. And I know this is a big subject, but could you give context maybe versus Keynesian economics or in another way, just for anyone listening, when you say those words, what, what should they understand? Sure. I'll try to keep it brief. So what we call Austrian economics today actually represents economic science since the beginning of human knowledge, basically only in the past couple of hundred years have we had Keynesian economics, which is this pseudoscience that's been funded and implemented into modern modern universities and curriculum, obviously funded by the central bank. And it really its sole justification or its sole purpose rather is the justification of, of monopolizing money and, and printing money. So um, that's a very strong worded uh, accusation. Clearly uh, I, we do, we go to links to back that up on the show, but in general, that's, that's kind of the truth. Uh, the other thing I could say about it is just, from an epistemic standpoint, like the way these two schools of thought evaluate knowledge, um, Keynesianism is just provably wrong, right? They're, they're looking at economic history and applying different interpretations, typically with mathematical models to make it look very sophisticated and airtight. But the reality is there are no, no constants in human action, right? So we know that water always freezes at zero degrees centigrade, but there's no such constant relationship in the sphere of human action. So that the empiricism doesn't work for economics, for economic science. What you need is rationalism. You need axioms like airtight, 
assumptions, right? Incontrovertible assumptions that you then build, you deduce theorems from. This is something much more like mathematics rather than something um, like physics, for instance. So Austrian economics is just more in line with the truth of what economic science is, which is this sphere of social engagement that has no constants within it. So it's, it's a, a truer science, if you will. And so now with doing all these uh, episodes that you've done currently, when someone asks you, how would you describe money? Like, what would you say? Like, what is money? My personal latest thinking is like money is information. Like I'm getting information from, Mm -hmm. from the money. Uh, I I feel like my answer is always changing. Um, What, what, what is your current, because sometimes I'll say, okay, it's purchasing power. Money is purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what's your current definition of money or working hypothesis or working theory? Cause you know, having here, listened to you, I know you're exploring this quite deeply, but if someone was to ask you, what is money? What would you answer today? It's I'm a, not holding you to this. I know it can change. Well, look there, it's not change. There's just multiple answers. Mm-hmm. There are many, I think I have a running document with 50 some odd answers. I've tried, I've written about several of them, probably upwards of 10 on the blog, writing out different answers and explaining what it means. But um, I'll run with what you put out there, actually. So you said information. I've also often thought about money as kind of a composite between information, energy, and time. You know, it's obviously information in the sense that it conveys the price signal, right? So this is the, this is taking the aggregate supply of an asset in the world and taking all of the ordinal valuations that people are placing on that asset, right? The preferences people have to hold gold or whatever the commodity is. And it's distilling all of that activity, right? This whole constant storm of trading and and decision-making and action-taking compresses all of that into the price signal. And so that one number has massively compressed this entire data set called the world economy or the world market for gold or for any other commodity, right? So it's a, it's a miraculous data compression technology, just in the fact that money enables the pricing system. Obviously, money is related to energy in the sense of proof of work, right? This is what secured gold supply from debasement historically. The fact that it was expensive to discover it, mine it, refine it, coin it, et cetera. That was a, a cost, a, a prohibitive cost that prevented the over expansion or the overinflation of gold supply. And if you overly inflate or expand the supply of something, obviously you compromise its integrity as a store of value. So it's the energy expenditure necessary to make gold money that secured its supply from inflation or counterfeiting. That's what made it the best store of value historically. So all of that obviously deeply connected to energy, right? And and fiat would be the reverse when you actually create a monetary instrument that has basically zero energy cost to produce new units of, it, it suffers hyperinflation, right? People overissue, they overprint, overinflate, overcounterfeit, whatever you want to call it. They're all the same thing and suck all the energy out of the money, right? That's, that's kind of the, the pathology we've been engaged in over time. And then finally, <clears throat> time, you know, money, pretty obvious, right? It's something we exchange our time for. And then we take into the marketplace and we expect other people to make commensurate sacrifices for the money we hold, right? When we go and buy something at a restaurant or clothing, right? There's, there's time and effort that went into producing these goods and services 
that we're actually using money as an, as an instrument to uh, lay claim on. So in that way, I kind of, it's not an exact legal analogy, but I say that in the same way that a company stock for stock certificate is title to company capital, that money is title to human time, right? It doesn't actually mean that money gives you ownership of human time, but in effect in the marketplace, obviously it commands people's time and attention. So that's three sort of elemental ways to think about what money is, uh, but there are many, many answers. And so then Bitcoin you're focusing on because you think it's currently the possible best form of money. Is, is that like, how would I, how, like what, I guess you, you, you've, un, you know, you've discovered Bitcoin, you're focusing on it because you're like, <clears throat> holy shit, holy shit. This might be the best form. This thing might be the best form of money we've ever seen. Well, in addition to, I think all the answers I gave to your first question mm-hmm. about why I would add to, I would add that rather um, Bitcoin is like the, invention of the first pure money, right? You could almost say that we've only had approximations of money until Bitcoin. And what I mean by this is, um, you know, often commodities are bifurcated into their industrial use value and their monetary use value. So in this way, every asset that's held with the intention of exchanging it in the future, rather than consuming it or engaging in production with it, that is technically like a monetary premium. So everything, every asset has some moneyness to it or some monetary premium, but the vast majority of monetary premium tends to aggregate to that one asset that we promote or select as money. Um, And so when you look at gold, right, gold has somewhere in the neighborhood of a $10 trillion market cap, depending on the day. Um, I think the last I looked at this, around 20% of its market cap is for uh, demand for gold as an industrial use metal. So actually putting it in computers, putting it in dentistry, et cetera. Um, and the other $8 trillion of gold's market cap is for demand for gold as a reserve asset, as a monetary, as a store value, frankly, to hold economic value and purchasing power across time. So in that way, you could look at gold and say, well, this analog, I like to call gold analog Bitcoin, actually, instead of calling Bitcoin digital gold. So this analog Bitcoin instrument, it's only like an 80% effective money, mm-hmm. right? It's it's defective to the extent that it's useful in industrial processes. So if it's 20% industrial use uh, in its market cap, that, that means it's roughly a 20% inefficient money. And so that's just kind of one lens for it. Um, and then when you look at Bitcoin through that same lens, you say, wow, this is the first, Bitcoin's a f- the first in many ways, right? The first fixed supply asset, the first energy buyer of last resort. Um, and it's also, um, oh, no, I lost my train of thought on the... No, that's okay. But you're, you're getting, and maybe it'll come back to you, but what you're describing is so so powerful. And I feel like we're going to go through this transition. I'm curious to see how you think this transition is going to go, because if I summarize what I'm hearing from you, and I'm probably not going to do it justice, but if the economy is people acting and interacting with each other and money sits between those interactions. So like, excuse me if I'm like overgeneralizing here, but if if, if the economy is, you know, people doing things, 
trading things back and forth. That's the real value of the economy, what we're all doing, how we're assigning value to what we're doing. And the thing that sits between us is the money. Mm-hmm. And the best form of money can't be cheated, can't be stolen, can't be inflated, can't be you know uh, manipulated. And Bitcoin seems to serve that purpose very well. And so here's where I'm like, holy shit, like Bitcoin does serve the purpose of money better than anything you know, maybe we've seen, Yes. what does this transition look like? Because I feel like humans naturally gravitate to the best form of money. Mm-hmm. Like, I just feel like that's throughout history. Humans are going to gravitate to this, whether we're early or not can debate. But when I see things like the impervious browser, and I know you've been talking about the impervious browser come out when I see things like, I don't know how to pronounce it even Nostra with that Damis, Damis browser. I'm probably butchering these names. I apologize. <laughs> when I see the fountain app, I'm like, holy, like, holy smokes. Like there are now applications globally where you and I can be on a chat. I'm sending you money. You're sending me money. This transition from nation states around the world controlling what they think their money is or their currency is to this Bitcoin thing, it is going to happen. And it might be happening faster than I initially thought. What, yeah. what do you think that transition is going to look like over the next 10 years? Let's just focus on that. Like it's it, to me, whenever I talk about this, it's going to be rocky. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be pretty rocky. Well, um, I, to complete the train of thought that I lost earlier, the other thing that Bitcoin is a first, uh, is that it is the first pure money, right? As that was kind of the original point we're on is, the first asset where 100% of its market cap is monetary premium. Um, so that it's hard to say, it's hard to over, it's easy to say that in words, but it's hard to understand how impactful that promises to be. You could almost consider Bitcoin in that way, like the invention of pure money or something like that. Uh, another way to say this is, is, is the most, it's the strongest form of property we've ever had. Right, that you can now have exclusive power and control over an asset in a way that was never before possible in terms of basically every dimension of ownership, right? How you secure it, where you secure it, how you move it, uh, anonymity, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, what, you know, so there's that, right? There's this wow, mega, like once in a 500 year or more innovation, right? This is, it's very disruptive. Um, and I think the question then it becomes like your question is essentially like, what, how does it, what happens, right? What's the transformation? What are the implications? Um, and we've, yeah. I've written about this some, uh, I can, I'll plan to write more about it. A lot of this, my thinking on this is based on the book, the sovereign individual. Mm-hmm. Um, you, once you take away that much revenue from the nation state, it just, forces it to become a more accountable organization to the preferences of citizens. Um, Another way of saying that is when you have a fiat currency printing press in the heart of your operation, and you can always just print more money to paper over whatever loss producing activity uh, you're engaged in, then it really disconnects you from reality, right? You are, you're a monopolist, right? You don't care what your customers think because they have no other choice. And so we have, you know, we, at least in the West, we 
pride ourselves on free market principles, yet here we have at the heart of every modern economy, this anti-free market, anti-capitalist institution called the central bank that is just systematically violating people's property. Um, it's like a wealth vacuum, right? In the middle of, of every modern economy, that's effectively a central planner's dream, right? You can't operate a central plan really without a central bank or said differently, central banking is the central planning of money. Money is the most important market in the world. If we don't tolerate central planning on principle in any other market in the world, then why in the fuck do we tolerate it in the market <laughs> for money? So um, the transformation is difficult. You say you intuit Rocky. Uh, I am very optimistic about the bright orange future. Like when we actually mm. do, you know, Bitcoin becomes dominant. It's just this global disincentive to coercion and violence. It's an incentive to monetize stranded assets, um, you know, produce cheap renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these mm -hmm. second, third order effects mm -hmm. Bitcoin promises to usher in, but the middle ground, right? The, the between there, the between now and then is hard to understand what it will look like. Um, the, the sort of rough proxy we have is when the United States economically outcompeted Soviet Russia in the 20th century, and you saw Soviet Russia effectively go bankrupt, right? And what happened? Well, it fragmented, right, into 30 some odd countries that it had previously conquered. So this organization called the USSR just sort of shattered because the economic binding was, uh, it was it's basically, it's, it's, its losses were forced, right? Mm -hmm. The, the mm -hmm. US was outcompeting it. I think uh, the numbers I heard were, because the Soviet Russia was trying to central plan the entire economy by the end or near the end of the Soviet union. Uh, it was a diseconomy. It wasn't even an economy like, you know, 100 trillion. I'm making up a number here, $100 billion in assets go in $33 billion in assets come out. <laughs> like it's a diseconomy at some point. So, and that's the, thank God for that, by the way, thank God that central planning is self destructive or self annihilating. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we might be really forced to live with it for a long time. But fortunately, these demagogic um, fantasies, when they're tried, when they are attempted to be implemented into real life, they fail because central planning doesn't work. Um, so maybe we see some of that. Maybe we see some consolidation in uh, international currencies. I think we could see a, a lot more hyperinflations, a lot more situations like Lebanon bail-ins, bail-outs, you know, more exotic financial wizardry and systemized theft, more capital controls, all of these things, but you would possibly see nation states start, start to fail, start to go bankrupt. And I think in that world, you see more consolidation into fewer currencies. So probably the dollar and then mm -hmm. probably something in the East, right? Rubles, Chinese, mm -hmm. uh, yuan yen whatever their currency is called that's interesting the way you're bringing it up i never thought about that like kind of the kind of like just the fall of the soviet union it just happened like you know the when that wall came down i don't even know i can't even remember the year was it i don't maybe it was 1980 i think it was 1989 i was old enough to i should know the exact year but it did almost feel like an overnight thing but it was like brewing, brewing, brewing. The last 10 years, things were really going sideways. And then boom, 
the wall yeah. comes down. So yeah, I never really thought about it like that. And you know, right. That's a great, I'm glad you bring up that example, just to briefly comment on that. That wall was erected to keep people from escaping the centrally planned <laughs> side, right? Exactly. People yeah. wanted to run to capitalism where you could trade and have freedom and uh, yeah, it feels like, yeah. Create wealth and, yeah. uh, and flourish. Basically. Mm. That's why the wall was erected and so. have property rights. Yes. Have property rights. That's right. Individualized private property versus socialized property. Socialized yeah, that's property. Interesting. Yeah. When, what did Aristotle say? When everybody owns everything, nobody takes care of anything. Mm-hmm. There's no degree of reward or responsibility in a socialized property system. It's not property. It's just bullshit. The state mm-hmm. owns everything and they tyrannize everyone. Um, and that's antithetical, obviously, to the free market capitalist system where we have individual individualized private property rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, yeah, that, that to me helps me kind of picture how this can kind of happen. It's like, there can be distortions. There can be people pushing back governments, pushing back, like you're, you know, you're kind of alluding to, but then one day it's just kind of like, boom, they're star. The beast has been starved. The revenues drop so much that other people come into power that have to kind of change the way things are. And it's just like a for like a, like a force of nature makes the change. And I feel you know, it, again, like when I talk about this stuff, I know I feel like, especially with my friends, Robert, like, I know I sound crazy, but I'm like, this feels like it's going to happen. And I want more and more people to know. And that's why I appreciate, you know, your work and that kind of stuff. But, you know, it just feels like such a big deal to me that uh, I, I stand in awe of this thing. And I know when I say that, how ridiculous, I keep saying it, oh, but I understand. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just stand in awe. Um I was going to ask you about the lightning network, but I'm going to, I'm going to skip over that for one second. You have a series with Jason Lowry um, that I really found, found mind blowing. Um, When I say the Jason Lowry series to you, so anyone listening, Mm. Robert interviewed Jason Lowry. I feel like it was several episodes. I don't know. I just kept listening. Maybe it was one long. Yeah. Was it okay? I just kept listening and listening. And um, for anyone who hasn't listened to that series, could you share maybe one of your biggest takeaways from that particular series that you just stuck with you? I know. And I know that that yeah. was a, that was a big one, but just what comes to mind when I say his name in that discussion? Well, Jason's a brilliant guy. And, um, you know, I had been thinking along similar lines, actually. I, I kept hearing Jordan Peterson use, he was saying that the postmodernist perspective on social institutions is that they were all about power. And so he was, he was critiquing this idea of power and I was bothered by the ambivalence of that term, right? Because power, we often use it in a negative connotation. I think people typically mean, I think what Jordan means in that setting is, uh, or in that context rather, is that he means authority, right? This is one individual having power over other individuals, like in terms of telling them what to do typically by threat of force. Um, so that's one definition of power, but there is another very equally, if not more important definition, and that is energy per unit time, right? It's just Watts. And so Lowry does a brilliant job of explaining what that he calls it the power projection game, right? It's effectively the entire teleological history of evolution itself is this Darwinian theater of combat where organisms are trying to outcompete one another in terms of projecting greater amounts of power 
to drive evolution itself. And, you know, properly understood, I think it's, and I do argue this, that same algorithm of evolution, if it works, keep it. If it does not, discard it, right? This very brutal, simple algorithm that propagates through all of us, all life. It also propagates in non-biological substrates, right? That's the same process innovation is. Innovation is non-biological evolution, and evolution is biological innovation. Like they're the same process, just different substrates that they're they're propagating through. So this idea that Bitcoin is like the one of the highest evolutionary forms yet achieved in the sphere of human consciousness, right? We've created indisputable order, right? There's no such thing as an indisputable record keeping system prior mm-hmm. to Bitcoin. It's, it's in, inarguable, incontestable, incontrovertible truth. Like you, can, you can come up with every theory you want to try and explain mm-hmm. it away, but if it's on that blockchain, and it's sufficiently cemented in blocks, right? Six confirmations or whatever your number is. There is no overturning that reality. Mm-hmm. And human beings have never created an immutable record keeping system like that. But it's but the immutability is rooted in the projection of power, right? We still have this mining uh, process that 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 uh, ensures the supply integrity of Bitcoin. So it's a very fascinating conversation and it start you start to see how physical power right watts and what i call political power jason calls this real power physical power real power and he calls political power abstract power mm-hmm. um you see how they they interact with one another and um it's a just a brilliant conversation that helps you get to the essence of what bitcoin is and i think see through some illusions as well like once you start to understand this political power game is all in the human imagination. Um, that was quite eye-opening for me as well. Yeah. And what you, what that series helped for me is I never thought about physical power being connected to the digital realm before and how Bitcoin was using proof of work to have physical power in the form, you know, we talk about it as proof of work or miners and mining and electricity and all this stuff. And I had kind of talked about it in that regard, but I had never spoken about it like, wow, like there's this digital truth that is true because it's immutable. But and part of the reason it's immutable is because it's connected to this physical power in the Mm -hmm. physical world. That's right. And now the only way it can be immutable, by the way. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. the only way, and it just, maybe it's a bit of my tech background. I used to work at Oracle, you know, and databases and people would always try to hack into databases. And the only real protection that you would have is how in, you know, how imaginative you can get on different passwords or different kind of security loops that people would have to jump through different networks and kind of get through to one network and the other, but it was all in the digital space. And when he said it that way, I thought, oh my gosh, like if somebody was to try to hack a database that I was controlling and one of the APIs or one of the programmatic things that I could enforce was in order to enter this database, not only do you have to have the right password, but you have to show me 10 million sats or, you know, a hundred million dollar equivalent of US dollar equivalent of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. 
And when you connect that to the digital world, you're essentially saying you can't hack into this digital realm without showing me some physical power that you have. You either have to mm-hmm. buy that Bitcoin or mine it. Mm-hmm. And you're combining this in the digital space. It was just for me, Robert, it was like completely yeah. just mind blowing. Yes. Because it's never, mm-hmm. I've never married it before. And the abstract power that you guys were talking about is just that it's like there's politicians or universities or anyone who gives themselves a title is like, Hey, I am an authority because I've, you know, I have this title. Whereas, whereas what Bitcoin's doing, it's, it's using power to say, here's this ledger, here's the truth. Robert owns this much of it. I own this much and there's nothing anyone can do about it unless you project some power as well to get some for yourself. And we're touching on a lot of topics. I'm trying to summarize it kind of quickly. Um, but no, that- it's, it's brilliantly put. And I think if Jason were here, he would advocate for Bitcoin as this revolution in a, it's like a new cybersecurity paradigm, maybe a way that he would put it. That yeah, that's is, what he was calling it, like yeah, a cybersecurity protocol. Much more that's than right. money, he says. Yeah, I and forgot. I, we, that's right. We argue yeah. about that, actually, because I'm much more like, well, maybe money is just way more important than we've ever really considered. And so the fact that we've discovered a pure money, it is all these other things. Yeah. Yeah, but at yeah. the end of the day, these are all just, again, words we're trying to, you know, fit onto this, this radically new emergent reality. Um, and that's what gets into the domain of the imagination again. So it's a very interesting conversation and series. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Oh, mind blowing. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, A multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. 
It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Okay, so I have something for you then. I think a lot of people are making US dollar price predictions on Bitcoin right now, which over time have become less and less important to me. It's funny because when I first went into Bitcoin, like the price of it was like, oh, like what's this thing? And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, number go up and all this stuff. And and lately it's like, no, this is like a form of property that like, you know, I just feel like it's like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to own this, get out of my life and leave me alone. It's like, that's where I've got, and I don't care about your US dollar price of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Having said all that, I guess I'm, I, I guess I want to talk about the price a little bit. I, I guess the way the U.S. economy is being managed right now, do you, I, guess, I guess it's possible. Anything's possible here. I guess I could see the U.S. dollar price of Bitcoin going much lower than it is now. Oh, of um, yeah, and you, you're you're agreeing with that? Like, I feel like to me, it, it's become a little bit irrelevant. I know that's dangerous speak because if someone's taking all the, which I would never advocate for, if someone's taking all their living expenses and putting into Bitcoin, it's not, it's not maybe, it, it's maybe a little too volatile for most people to be able to do that. Um, but where, where do you stand? Does that even bother you anymore? Or um, is it important to you? Um like, I guess it's important, but where, where do you stand on the, on the price, the U S dollar price of Bitcoin? How, well, how do you there, think look, about that right now? There's no question whatsoever that a higher U S dollar price Bitcoins making Bitcoiners much richer. Right. And you see this every bull market, they tend to start doing more things, right? They're louder. There's more celebration. So yeah, everyone I think is rooting for Bitcoin number go up because but the flip side, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg because beneath the surface of number go up is, you know, freedom go up, state power go down, coercion go down, uh, truth go up, all of these second, third order things that Bitcoin brings in. But in terms of obviously its price volatility is extreme, right? Extreme. It's like an 80 vol asset. Um depends on over what time period you're looking at, of course, but uh, I don't think there's any sensible Bitcoiner in the world that will tell you to use Bitcoin like a checking account, right? This is not something Mm -hmm. you're Mm -hmm. trying to live off of. This is long-term savings technology. So, and a lot of, I think the, just being able to engage with an asset like this, that you can actually own a fixed fraction of forever, you know, well, obviously safety and popularize this term lowers everyone's time preference, right? People mm-hmm. start to think a lot more long-term. Um, and that that really leads to overall better behavior, right? People tend to start just running their lives more profitably. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you take excess dollars that you are able to produce and turn those into BTC periodically, right? So this long-term dollar cost averaging accumulation strategy along with, which that's basically what I do. I buy Bitcoin every single day, no matter the price. So you're, you're just covered for, uh, in that sense. But I also uh, will accumulate dollars in some of my businesses and I will opportunistically buy the dip, right? If Bitcoin's mm-hmm. price goes down, I'll buy more. So that whole approach for me makes me very price insensitive. I don't, care. Like, I mean, of course 
it goes up, state power go down. That's all wonderful. No, it's fun. But I'm not emotionally attached to the movements of the price. And I think if you are emotionally attached to the movements of the price, it's very likely that your position is too high or too large for your risk profile. Um, So again, it's long-term savings technology and, and nothing, nothing more than that in terms of uh, the volatility, at least. Okay. I have something else for you then. Why do you think most North Americans don't pay as much attention to money and what money is? Is it because the systems worked fairly well for last 50 years for them relatively well, you know, or is it because people are working so hard to pay for the bills, you know, their bills and their rent and their groceries and, you know, feed the kids and everything. They don't have time to go down the rabbit hole. I I think that's correct. Um, It's kind of a pernicious problem, right? If everyone's on this hamster wheel of having to work faster and more to outrun inflation, then they have less and less time to do anything, right? Spend with their kids, start a business, definitely not study Bitcoin, right? What what is the minimal hour (laughs) investment to see the light on Bitcoin? People throw around a hundred hours. It's like, who's got an extra hundred hours sitting around in the fiat paradigm? It's, you know, people are, they're being run ragged in the system. So I think that has a lot to do with it. And then again, from an educational standpoint, I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. I never learned one minute of Austrian economics in school. I studied a lot of economics, not one peep of Mises or Rothbard or Hayek or Hoppe, like none of these guys were mentioned. And that is economic science, right? So it's a little strange having gone through the university system and like been indoctrinated into this pseudoscience called Keynesianism where government is represented as God, effectively, an organization that suffers no opportunity costs. They can issue new money into existence or take it away. That's like saying they can just create wealth or create, uh, really just redistribute property rights at will. That's effectively what you're granting this, this omnipotent organization. And that does not hold up to the, to the light of rationality for even a second, right? That all of that bullshit just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think we need more economics education in the world, right? We need these ideas to permeate people. And I don't, obviously we do what we can on the educational front as we're doing right now, as we do on the show, the written work, et cetera. But I really think it's the pain that ultimately gets people to move, right? It's Mm -hmm. when they experience hyperinflation or the experience, uh, a bail in, right? One day you've got 500,000 euros in your bank account, you wake up and everything above a hundred thousand was seized to the tune of 90%. Um, you know, those types of painful experiences tend to be what get people to awaken to the value proposition of Bitcoin. Do you ever think that Bitcoin won't fully express itself as you would like to see it because of human nature, the way it is in your lifetime? Do you, do you ever think that perhaps you won't see the future that you would like to see with Bitcoin just because of, of human nature? Oh, I, you know, on the timing thing, I have no idea if I'll see it in my lifetime. I have no idea yeah. how long this could take. It's really just, 
it's directional, right? All of this analysis and um, the thesis that I'm putting forth is just kind of economic directional saying, okay, over time, people print money, they get their yeah, property rights it. violated. They try to move towards less viable property. And that's how civilization kind of self-organizes. Uh, so the question is, you know, what happens when you throw this unbreakable property relationship into the mix? But who knows? Like, right? This could take 500 years, 50 years, five years. It's really impossible to say. So I'm not concerned about mm. seeing it in my lifetime. Um, I'm just concerned about throwing light on the darkest system that I see in the world. And that is yeah. the, the <laughs> opaque, you know, central bank, right? The that funds the war machine. And I think funds a lot of this mainstream media bullshit narrative uh that we see it's just it's a big mess you know it's um yeah it really is a big mess but you're right i think the the i think you you said the orange light earlier like when i see things kind of happening and 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 you know i know there was a bitcoin conference in africa i you know i know i know greg foss was down in uh, el salvador recently when i see things like that that to me is uh really encouraging because it, it just shows me what could be and what could be in my own lifetime. And uh, to me, that stuff's exciting. So, yeah. you know, there's kind of these like glimmers of like, wow, this is going to get fun and yeah. it is already getting fun. Um, but sometimes when you sit in, as I sit in North America, sometimes I look around and I think after discovering Bitcoin, I'm just like, what's everyone's problem? Like, don't they get it? Like, this is yeah. like, this is disaster. <laughs> and I'm not a negative person. I don't mean that, to, <laughs> yeah. but I'm like, I just look around and go like, do you don't understand how better things can be? Yeah. No, <laughs> Bitcoin. Yeah. It'll do that to you. And that can make you a bit of a social pariah in a way. Yeah, that, totally. That and, <laughs> and never shutting up about Bitcoin. People are like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Enough. It's funny. Cause I think I've gone through and anyone listening to this podcast probably thinks I don't shut up about it, but in my personal life, I have quieted down a little bit because I'm like, Oh, when the people are ready to talk about it, they'll talk about it with yeah. me. Whereas by four, I think my first year was like screaming or two years was first screaming from yeah. the top of a mountain. And now it's like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it when, when, you yeah. know, you, you want to talk about it. You know, <laughs> it's, I've noticed the, uh, propensity of people wanting to talk to you about Bitcoin is highly correlated to the price. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, when I'm talking about it, and that's when I started writing and putting out a lot of stuff initially was in a deep bear market. And there was a long time where people just kind of ridiculed, well, not ridiculed, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Said, Hey man, yeah. like, okay, we get it, but the price is still yeah. going down. So what's going on. And then in a bull yeah. market, uh, those same people come back around and really want to, uh, <laughs> listen to what yeah. you have to say. It's funny. If people talk about the price of me now, I'm like, you don't get it. You don't deserve to talk about it. We're not talking. <laughs> I'm taking the opposite approach, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I get it. I, I want to ask you about your podcast because you have so many episodes and they're, they're great in-depth stuff. Wh which episodes do you want to get more listens that haven't? Like, are there some episodes? I'm sure there's some episodes you're like, damn, oh, I really wish those ones got a few more listens. Are there a couple uh, names that come to mind or topics that come to mind? So you're just saying like, underappreciated episodes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh my goodness. Um, it's a big question. The one that, you know, I really enjoyed speaking with John Verveke. Okay. Uh, we did a series. He works with Peterson or worked with Peterson rather at university of Toronto. Uh, he is a cognitive scientist and philosopher, very brilliant guy. He's been on Lex Fridman's show recently. It's a great interview. 
Um, but I had him on a long time ago. We did a series, not a long time ago, I guess almost two years ago. We have a series together called the John Ravakey series. Um, that was just a very fun discussion for me, learning about his thinking. He's a very, very deep, he has a very deep philosophical um, understanding of the world. Uh, one of the best read people uh, and best speakers I, I've encountered. And then we later on did another series called the Platonic Philosophy Series, where he recommended a book um, titled, uh, the title is escaping me at the moment. The author is DC Schindler. Oh, it's Plato's Critique of Impure Reason is the name of the book. And the author is DC Schindler. And that was Verveke's recommendation to me. I read the book was completely stunned how good it was. It's about Neoplatonism. Um, fantastic philosophy book. And so he came on and we talked about that for, I think four or five episodes. Uh, and yeah, they get, I mean, they are appreciated, you know, they've gotten a good amount of views and downloads, but I think it's that super deep philosophical content that maybe other people don't have the patience for perhaps, mm -hmm. but when you do spend the time to go down there, you're kind of in the, the, in the annals of the thinking of Western civilization, right? Like Plato's at the bottom of a lot of the way we think about reality fundamentally. So it's interesting to get down there and understand the ideas they were wrestling with and the relationship between the relative and the absolute. Um, I also think that helps shine some light on perhaps the profundity of Bitcoin because it's the another first that Bitcoin is. It's the first absolute anything humans have ever created. In this case, mm -hmm. an absolutely fixed supply or an absolutely scarce money. Um, you know, ab absolute meaning something that does not change. Uh, humans have never been able to create again, the number zero, as you mentioned earlier, I think is a, as a close parallel, right. In a mathematical system, zero is that which does not change. And it obviously is very profound to the development of mathematics. So this idea that we have created an absolute money, uh, could be very profound to all of socioeconomics and, um, yeah, talking about Plato with John Verveke just really helps shine some light on the nature of the absolute awesome. and how profound it is. So, what are do you have conscious principles that you live by? And if you do, how did you come to those? I'll give you an example, just because I'm I'm kind of throwing you some curveballs here. So for me, I, you know, I have kind of these three principles, like always do the right thing, treat other people as you would treat yourself and give 110% like those. Mm -hmm. And in business, those have always really worked well for myself in life. It's like when Nick, my brother and I started this business together, when we don't want to do something, but we know mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. We always just do it, even though doing that thing might suck. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just makes life super, super easy. And those three principles, which I picked up from like a coach, I think of Notre Dame football, listening to something at like my, a sales conference. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I said, those are the three principles I want to live by. Um, do you, do you have principles that you kind of live by that you refer to every once in a while? You seem like you're such a deep thinker. I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, I sat down to try and formulate this thinking uh several years ago probably six years ago i think when i, I first started uh one of my businesses 
And for me, you know, after meditating on it for some time, I crystallized it down into freedom, growth, and responsibility. Um, so freedom is something that it's like an evolving relationship I've had. You know, when I'm a younger man, I always thought I was just doing whatever I want. But now my my view of freedom is more like something, something like submission to the truth that when your actions are ordered to what is true, that you are actually free. Um, and you can also look at freedom as something like the number of options available to you, something in a more pragmatic sense of freedom and would be the optionality space available to an individual. Right. And so we, I think, um, the process of innovation itself, we're actually expanding that option space. So, uh, someone living before the industrial revolution, for instance, didn't have the option of flying from New York to LA, right? It did not mm -hmm. exist. It wasn't a technological reality, but through free trade and capitalism, we now we've expanded that option space where now you and I enjoy that, that option. We can fly pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, so I, very much value freedom, like in terms of trying to create it in my own life. I want to maximize the number of options available to me. Uh, I want to submit myself to the truth as best that I can. That has a lot of meanings to me. Um, mm. More recently, it's been like trying to model myself after Christ or to be a disciple of Christ, which for me is submitting to the truth of selfless love, which is agape. Uh, which is core to the, the Christian teaching. And I think agape is a very deep truth, actually, because no human reaches adulthood without receiving selfless love from, a, from at least one other person, right? We were literally biologically encoded that way. We made a trade-off where for larger cognitive development, we're born earlier and more feeble. Whereas you see a lot of, you know, like if a, a horse is born, right? You'll see the, mm -hmm. the baby horse stand up and start to yep. walk right almost instantly so they there's they've made different trade-offs than humans and so because we've made that trade-off we actually require agape like it's a necessary reality for us to nurture infants into adults right um and so anyways that's like one way i've, I've looked at trying to just submit myself to the truth and be free and support free and open inquiry and markets. These are the things that discover new innovations and expand the option space. So it's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. freedom's a crazy one, right? It touches, I guess it should be that way. It touches a lot of things. Um, growth, I guess is a little more straightforward. It's just trying, you know, we're always spiraling up or spiraling down pretty much. Mm -hmm. Like we're all complex systems that are in forever in dynamic movement, right? We're always changing mm -hmm. all the time. And it's, if you don't steer that, like I know when I've in my past, when I've been aimless, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like pre Bitcoin, it was just fiat, like dollar chasing, you know, finance yeah. bro or whatever. I was very aimless. And so that without that upward aim, my spiral up became just a spiral down. Like I was things about my life, uh, I just wasn't enjoying them. You know, there's, there's just like, um, problems, right? I don't know how else to describe it. Like if you're not aimed at something good and improving yourself, you'll just drift, uh, in your lost. life. And yeah. yeah, your life can just kind of actually experience less meaning, I guess would be the best way to put it. You mm -hmm. experience less meaning when your aim is not 
set and you'll start to spiral downward. So growth, just constantly trying to orient myself Mm -hmm. towards growth, whatever that means in any particular performative dimension, right? If I'm trying to uh, have better control of my emotions, maybe I'm trying to read and learn more. I'm trying to expand and grow my business. I'm trying to expand downloads. I want to refine my Mm -hmm. message, how I deliver it. I want to meditate more. Like I try to live a very disciplined, rigorous lifestyle, um, but also balance, right? You have to have balance with just free time and, and relaxing. So not try to not be maniacal about it, but pretty damn serious about it at the same time. And then finally just responsibility, which is, um, again, I'll, I'll thank Peterson for just hammering home the importance of that in life that, um, no matter the situation you're in, the best strategy is to always just take as much responsibility as you can. Like, and you could think about this in the sense of responsibilities, like an obligation is what we typically think of. Like I'm responsible mm-hmm. to take care of my kids or, 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 or your business or whatever the thing is, uh, you have an obligation for caretaking, let's say. And that's one way to interpret it. I think that's very important, but there's also this interpretation of responsibility as the ability to respond. So every situation, every contour of uncertainty that you confront in life, like you should be constantly figuring out how best to respond to it. And that gets back into kind of growth, right? You're always trying to Mm -hmm. develop your skills and your options and how you respond to reality. So you could say that through growth that you're actually maximizing your, your responsibility, right? And that actually lets you be more, uh, be better at that obligation of caretaking, that other understanding of, of responsibility. So this kind of has this symbiotic dual purpose, more responsibility allows or perpetuates more, allows you to be a better caretaker. Mm. Right. And it's, and Mm. so another way to think about this is again, the per the importance of private property, like did you have the exclusive relationship with the things of value that you create and you can use them, consume Mm -hmm. them, save them or trade them with others. Now we often call these private property rights, However, it's very important that we recall that they're also responsibilities. They're also private property responsibilities because you have the obligation to take care of that asset if you are to enjoy its features. If you have a nice car, right, that will get you from A to B really fast and cause all your friends to give you compliments, you know, you'll feel great about Mm -hmm. what it represents to you socially, but you don't maintain that car. You don't fulfill your responsibility Mm -hmm. of changing the oil and performing maintenance then you won't enjoy the rights that that asset affords you. So um, the implementation, I think, of responsibility in the world is in individualized private property. So uh, we need to incentivize, need to create incentive systems that actually get people to tilt this direction. Whereas again, as we said earlier, if you have socialized property, there's no one that has a responsibility to take care of it. The state has no responsibility to take care of it. Or socialized money. Because the Um, individuals running the state just want to maximize their own income, right? They don't have a capital interest in public property. The public property gets passed to the next authoritarian or mm -hmm. caretaker. And uh, that's the problem, right? So what you really need is private ownership of the means of production that maximizes the expression of responsibility in the world. Hmm. So private ownership of a of a, a Canadian healthcare system, it just, 
it would be better because the the public ownership because because our healthcare system is in a state of disrepair. As long as they're uh, competitive markets, right? As long yeah. as customers have the option to say no and they have options to take their business elsewhere, that's what keeps producers honest. When you start monopolizing or uh, eliminating competition within industries like healthcare mm-hmm. is obviously highly regulated, state run, mm-hmm. I guess in Canada, you don't have that forcing function for, for honest dealing with your customers. You don't have economic competition. So that's the problem is like you have, and this is, again, it's Darwinian, right? Yeah. It's let competition run. That's what creates the most evolution or innovation. So responsibility, that's interesting. I don't think I've really looked at it like that. So, so the responsibility I have, cause you know, to own rental properties, it's work, like it's crap to tell you the truth, like, you know, but, but if you're responsible with those properties and you nurture them and take care of them, the rewards of owning these things over 10 and 20 years, especially in a world that where they become monetized, let's face it, it's been, it's been really good, but you had to own that responsibility. And it's like, it's almost, it's, it's kind of making me think of Bitcoin a little bit because a lot of times I get pushed back of like, oh, it's kind of a pain in the ass, Tom. Like I got to do this like self custody thing and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting when I hear you say that because the responsibility of me controlling and owning the access to my Bitcoin really allows this money to be free because I'm not depending on a government or a banking system or someone else to take care of it. I'm owning that responsibility and taking care uh, of this thing. Yeah. What did uncle Ben tell Spider-Man with, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Robert, I love it. Uh, yeah, I just uh, thank you for. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I just want to honor your time and, and kind of wrap up. Thanks for sharing all the stuff. Thanks. I mean, you don't know us well. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I yeah, mean, of course. I really, really Absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the messages that you're sharing. I think it resonates with different people differently and at different times. You know, you go deep on a bunch of stuff, and I think. You know, sometimes I have to listen to stuff a few times and it, it hits me differently as my own journey kind of changes. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for yeah, all man. the work that you're putting. There's a bunch of us out here listening to your stuff and, you know, you, know, you might not get that feedback all the time, but you're having an impact on a, on a whole bunch of us. So I don't oh, really know how to support you other than to promote your, your the podcast and share your message. And, you know, you have fans here. So if there's anything we can ever do to, to help, please always just uh, just reach out. Thank you so much. You know, and then, I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah no, no problem at all. And so just having said that, where where can people find you? Where, where would you like to direct people to anyone listening to this? Yeah, uh, you can find us, all of our show and social links at whatismoneypodcast.com. And then you, my biggest social media platform is Twitter. My handle is at breedlove22, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Um, yeah, DMs are open. I do my best to check them um, and uh, very passionate about this movement. So uh, the great thing about Bitcoin is there's always more room, right? There's always, there's so much to be done. Everyone has a role to play. Uh, So if you're, you know, if you're learning about this asset and this movement, just um, I would say, keep going. It tends to make, you know, like you said, you've built an orange pilling operation out of your business. (laughs) Um, it's accidental. We back ended it into it. We back ended it into yeah, it, but that's what it, it's becoming. Yeah. <laughs> it tends to transform your, your life you know, thoroughly inside and out. And, um, also how you, how you show up in the world. It, it's, it's impactful. So 
if you're feeling disenchanted with fiat reality, uh, there is, there is refuge in Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of great characters and personalities and, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of like, yeah, great stuff. And listen, are you still deadlifting? Oh yeah. I imagine you are. Oh, you said, yeah. bro, okay. So my brother, like you can't tell by me. Yeah. My brother dragged me to a gym down. I've been going there for a while. He's the one who works out like six days a week. If he, he'll, he'll lose it. If he, if he doesn't go to the gym, uh, he goes bright and early. And, uh, we had the Canadian strong, uh, there's a Canadian strong man. I'm going to get annihilated for not remembering his name, but recently he's hitting like second and third place in the world in some strong men competitions. He came oh, nice. to our gym just down the street and uh, he was teaching everybody how to like pick up logs. Yeah. So next time, uh, next time you're in the Toronto area, if that ever, if you ever enter Canada, we'll yeah. bring you out and uh, you'll come to this gym here awesome. and we'll organize, uh, we'll organize such a thing. Um, and uh, yeah, that's been my personal journey. Just kind of going down. I'm thankful to my brother. To, when you said growth, I mean, that's been a really interesting journey to me going to the yes. gym and kind of just, you know, doing, doing all that kind of fun stuff. It's very humbling. So, yeah, anyway. I, I love it, man. I love the gym. Like for me now, I'm really getting more and more into kettlebells. Actually, I've been doing them for a long time Yeah, to go in there and play with physics. Oh, you no, know, it's so fun. And then you're also, you, when you strengthen your body, you strengthen everything, right? You're strengthening your discipline, oh, God. your mind, like how you should learn up. how to suffer. You yes. learn how to suffer. And I love, right. I love it when I'm about to quit and there's, you know, you, you, you keep going on a lift or the gym we go to, it's like, you know, there's power lifters in there. There's crossfitters in there. There's everybody doing everything in there. And, uh, yeah. 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 It's awesome. I, I, I clean my, my best clean and I can't do it right now. So I hate this, but my best clean ever was 250 pounds. And I tell you the day I did that, I felt like top of the world. You know, when you just yeah. have those moments where you're just like, yeah. I am king of the world today. <laughs> like I am just like, you know, so uh, it's a lot of weight. So, okay. Robert, thank you again for doing this. Yeah, really, man. really appreciate it. Thanks yeah, for man. taking Happy the time. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah. Yeah. Get some sleep. Get some sleep. I will do that. Yeah, get Shame some rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Thank All right, you. man.